It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. We will be picking up in Colossians 2. We finished up chapter 1 last week, and we'll be continuing through the book of Colossians. Uh, Just as a recap and a background, uh, Colossians was written by Paul to the church at Colossae. And uh, it's evident in this letter that Paul is directly um, giving his rebuttal, or rather a rewind back to the first things that the church in Colossae was given. So those first things would be Christ. So there was a lot of Gnostic heresy coming in to the church, and it was it was distorting their views. And Paul is writing to them, correcting that Gnostic heresy. And we'll see that a lot, actually, in chapter 2. And we'll go into some detail there. But he was correcting those things which placed Christ down on the ladder. He was saying, guys, like, Christ is number one. He's preeminent in everything, preeminent in creation, uh, in resurrection, in sustaining creation, everything. Christ is the preeminent one. And so he's putting things back into perspective for this church in Colossae. So coming into uh, chapter 2, I'm going to give you a, a brief rundown of some of the things that were being taught by the Gnostics at the time. Uh, remember, this is heresy, just being clear. So in a nutshell, they taught that all matter was evil. So since that was the case, God could not physically come in contact with matter at any point in time. So to get over the fact that that was there, they had to insert these intermediaries between God and creation. And uh, they called them emanations, okay? And among these was Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was in between God and creation and um, they didn't even really believe in the God that we believe in as revealed in the scripture. They thought that he was a being, but he was not the supreme being. He also was a type of intermediary. So it's, it's wacky. And it's really just a conglomeration of this ancient mysticism from the East, um, Judaism. There was a little bit of that in there. Uh, Christianity. A little bit of that was thrown in there, um, and a couple of other common beliefs of the time. So they're knocking Jesus off of the preeminent position. They're saying he's less than God. He was a created being. And so that is, that's one of the things that Paul is kind of refuting. So here in chapter two, verse one, he says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So this word conflict that we see in the New King James uh, can also be read as concern. So for I want you to know what a great concern I have for you and those in Laodicea. So of course, Paul is also engaged in a literal conflict, a spiritual conflict uh, with Satan and his minions, uh, they were trying to bring this heresy into the church and spoil the pure doctrine of Jesus Christ that was there. Uh, so in that sense, Paul is fighting in a conflict, and he knows that the way to win that conflict is by prayer 
and by the word of God. He says in um, verse 1 that, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And that tells us again that he hasn't visited this church yet. Uh, they haven't met him in person. So then he tells us uh, why he he's concerned for them and what effect he wants that to have in them. In verse 2, he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So here he's saying that he wants their hearts to be encouraged when they hear of how much he cares for them. Because he says, I have great care for you. I have great conflict or concern for you. And he hopes that that will, that will encourage them. I mean, I know I'm encouraged when I know that someone genuinely cares about my well-being. And so, same idea. He says, being knit together in love. It's, it's not another kind of bond. It's not a bond over the, their favorite sport. Oh, you like football too? I, I love football. It's not that kind of a bond. It's not a bond over a common hobby. I like to put together model cars. Cool. I do too. It's not that. It's a bond over love. And I would say that that is probably one of the strongest bonds that, that we, that any two people can share. You see a great example of that, uh, with David and Jonathan. It says that their hearts were knit together and that was a bond of love. He says, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. So we saw in chapter one, this guy named Epaphras, and it was made pretty clear in chapter one that Epaphras was the teacher of this church in Colossae. So they would have heard the doctrine that they received from Epaphras. Well, Paul here is basically putting his stamp of approval on that message from Epaphras. Uh, he says, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. So he wants them to be fully assured in what they've already received from Epaphras. Okay. And in that assurance, they can attain to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now, the Gnostics were making a really big deal about knowledge. Okay. They were literally saying that knowledge was the path to salvation. Okay. And it, it doesn't mix with the scripture. Uh, that's, that's totally, uh, their own doing, uh, traditions of men. And so Paul is acknowledging that teaching and he is refuting it. He says, all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Look at this. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's saying you don't have to be initiated into this Gnostic cult uh, to attain knowledge. The knowledge that you need is present in Christ and in the Father. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you don't have to uh, go meditating with a blanket over your head to find truth or to be close to God. Uh, you don't have to 
drop acid to uh, come into contact with God. He lives in us. It's that mystery, Christ in you. Okay, so, and even further, when you go home today and you ask Christ to to reveal those things to you which are in your life that may be displeasing, uh, to forgive you of your sins, you can't go any further to the source. That is the source that you're addressing, okay? And that is just beyond my comprehension that God would would bridge that gap for us. You know, I'm I'm a piece of trash. I mean, I'll just be straight up. Um, it's nothing in me that bridges that gap, but it's the completed work of Jesus Christ that allows me to go straight to the Father. And that's just, that's so exciting. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. If anyone's he- if anyone is here that has not been to college, that plans to go to college, I will tell you, there will be, odds are, at least one professor that tries to rip your faith away from you. And that's not an exaggeration. They, they don't want you to believe in Jesus at all. And they don't. And so they, they want you to come along with them in their miserable state. Um, and it's, it's sad, but you will encounter that if you, you're in that setting. Um, and this is a good place in scripture to, uh, cling to. Okay. So now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Um, it's interesting to me, and I was, I was thinking about this this morning. I was going to say it's funny to me, but it's not really funny. So I settled on the word interesting, but it's interesting to see how these different worldviews view the same evidence. Okay. So me coming from a biblical worldview, I look at the fossil record and I see the flood of Noah written all over it. Right. And then these evolutionists come in with their materialistic worldview and we're looking at the same fossils, same sediments layered on top of each other. And they see naturalistic evolution. And we're, we're looking at the same thing, but our worldviews change how we perceive it. Okay. How we interpret it. So don't let the wisdom of the world contaminate what you already know in Christ, that full knowledge that you already have. Verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So he mentions good order, and I think that's pretty significant. Uh, It's important that we have good order in the church. If you're a visitor and you come in and you see some craziness going on, um, even, you know, like somebody speaking in tongues or something like that that may not be completely normal for you, uh, you come in and see that, what are you going to think? Oh, what are these guys doing? Now, speaking in tongues is fine, but there's a time and a place for it. 
And I don't believe that that's in a organized worship setting. Uh, it's for more mature believers, uh, in your, your own space, kind of in a, a controlled environment. It's between you and God. Uh, it's not for others, but, um, we want to have this order in the church service. And that is a good thing. Paul calls it good order. So I'm going to stick with that. Uh, we, we did have the board decide recently here that pets are not allowed in the service. Okay. And that's so that we maintain order and service dogs are, um, take that on a case by case basis. Of course, some people need that to get around, but you can't just bring your pet in and start distracting other people from what is being taught. Uh, that is not what we would call good order. So he rejoices to see this good order in the church at Colossae. And and now this is something that he had mentioned in chapter 1 as well. He says, And the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Okay, Faith in Christ. Not faith in your pastor. Not faith in the Pope. Not faith in a system of belief. Nothing like that. Faith in Christ. Verse 6, as you have therefore received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, down in verse 8, Paul is going to say, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. He's warning these guys that there will, there will be people, and there were people, who would try to deceive them and cheat them out of what they had in Christ. Okay, bring them back into the world. So you ask, well, how can believers combat this assault on their faith. And this is good advice right here from Paul, okay? Now, we're going back up to six, and we're going to take us through some points that Paul gives us to combat these deceivers. In verse six, we see, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him, in the same way that you begun in him. Okay? If you were saved by the Spirit, how are you going to be made perfect by the flesh? Right? The flesh can't perfect the flesh. The flesh is literally the piece of you that causes our depraved state. You can't fix it with itself. It has to be from outside of the flesh that fixes the flesh. Now, these Gnostics... We're trying to fix the flesh with the flesh. We know what asceticism is, a very strict adherence to um, physical discipline. So like abstaining from food, drink, um, pleasure, like everything like that, asceticism. Uh, they would preach asceticism as a way to become more spiritually advanced, along with knowledge and a jumble of other things. Uh, so, Paul says, as you have therefore received Christ, so walk in him. So, continue how you started. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Don't turn away from what brought you to the faith, which is Christ. It matters less how you start than how you finish. It matters more how you finish than how you start. So, as a coach, myself, and... I know we've got a couple of uh, athletes in here. If you start the game 
on a strong foot and you're up at halftime. Who cares? Right? Nobody cares if you win the first half of the game. What matters is that you win the second half of the game. It's how you finish, it's not how you start. So in verse 7, he goes on to say, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So not only have you started in Christ and should you continue to walk in him, you should be rooted in him. Now, in my mind, this brings up a picture of a plant. Okay, And plants obviously have roots. The roots go down into the soil, and they absorb nutrients from the soil to help the plant grow and photosynthesis, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so in the same way, if we are rooted in Christ, that's where we receive our substance from. That's where we get these spiritual nutrients to help us grow. Um, so I thought that was a, a pretty good picture of that, just being rooted. Uh, it's also notable that uh, the trees in like hurricane areas, like down at the coast, they'll have really deep roots, and that'll keep them there when the winds start getting high. You, can, you see these palm trees during hurricanes that are bent over like that, almost parallel with the ground, but they're still stuck in their roots. They can't be moved by that wind because of the rooting. So as believers, we are to be rooted in Christ, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, this is this is good. I, I really like this. We need to make Christ the test. If we encounter a belief system that takes Christ out of a place of preeminence, that's not correct. Christ should be in a place of preeminence. So like we discussed, the Gnostics knocked Christ down one step. They said he's not God because God can't can't have anything to do with matter. But God created through Jesus, so Jesus is less than God. Does that make sense? So if what you encounter knocks Christ off of the ultimate throne, knocks him off of his position as God, then that is something that we can reject altogether because that's not what the Bible teaches us. Verse 9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. We are to draw on the fullness of Christ. Now, this word fullness was used a lot by the teachers of Gnosticism. And this is a direct, uh, have y'all seen the Thanksgiving clapbacks? Have you seen that? It's kind of a meme that comes around every Thanksgiving or so. And it's like, your aunt is telling you this and then you come back with something witty and get her back for it, something like that. But that's what I thought of um, when Paul is going back and forth with this Gnostic thought. It's like a clap back. So 
You've got um, the Gnostics teaching one thing and then Paul saying, nah, that's wrong. Here's what's right. Uh, anyways, uh, we need to realize that there is no substitute for Christ and that in him we have all that we need. When believers start to drift off into the world, into worldly living, uh, or are taken by these man-made systems like evolution, that school of thought, it's usually because they feel they lack something that Jesus can't supply for them. So they're lacking uh, whatever it may be. But they don't realize that Christ is all that they need. And it's sad to see, and I've seen it happen, and I have no doubt that I'll see it again. That doesn't make it any less sad. But no religious act or observance can add to or take away from the sufficiency of Christ to wash our sins. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We see two symbols talked about here. We see circumcision and baptism. Okay? Uh, both are symbols of things that were to come when the symbol was instituted. Okay? And circumcision is literally the cutting away of a small piece of flesh. Uh, but the circumcision ritual was pointing toward the reality of a spiritual circumcision that was to come. And now we enjoy this type of circumcision. And that is the cutting away of the fleshly parts of our hearts. Uh, it's doing away with the old man that prevailed before Christ came in you. Okay, so circumcision is this picture. Well, baptism is also this picture. It says that we are buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism is literally a symbol of being killed with Christ, buried with Christ, and resurrected with Christ. So it's a way for us to align ourselves with Christ. Um, just a public statement saying, I have made this decision and this is my guy. So symbols, but there's... There's more to it than what is actually there. Uh, and we are blessed to get to see the substance of these things. And we'll get into that a little bit in a second. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Uh, there's no mess too big. Uh, there's no sin too great, except for rejecting Christ. Um, but anything that you do can be forgiven. And even further, 
He wants to forgive you. Because that's why he came. He's already finished what it took to get you cleaned. All you have to do now is hand your life over to him. And he will forgive all trespasses. During the Passover, the Israelites had to literally apply the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. It wasn't enough to understand that that blood was effective for letting the angel pass over them, for protecting their firstborn. The knowledge of the effectiveness of the blood is not what saved them. It was the application of the blood on their home. And in the same way, it's the application of the blood of Christ to our lives that is salvation. And it's not, it's not the knowledge. The demons know that Jesus saves people. It's not knowledge. Um, in direct response to the Gnostics, it's the application. It's the faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, there's a lot of cultural relevance to the time when this was written here, and we don't really get all of that, but I'm going to do my best to unpack it for us. So this this word wiped out, that literally means obliterated. He completely obliterated the handwriting of requirements, wiped them out completely. And the handwriting, that word that's used, is speaking directly of a legal document. So it would be like a bond, like you owe me something, okay, let's sign it. That is what this word for handwriting means. It's a legal document. Well, now Christ has taken that document, and in this part of Asia at the time, it was a way of nullifying a agreement or this legal document. You would take it and you would nail it to a door. And you would drive a nail through it, and that document would be nullified. Well, this is telling us that Christ did that. He nullified the the handwriting of requirements that was contrary to us, the law, because no one could fulfill the law besides Christ. He took that document and nailed it to the cross, thereby nullifying the requirements of it. That was That was cool. So, and I hope I did that justice, but it's an awesome picture of what Christ has done. He took the old things, nailed them to the cross along with himself, and now we're made new. Out with the old, in with the new. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Now, when instituted, the law, including all of its regulations for food, drink, Sabbaths, feasts, all of these kinds of things, were only a shadow of what was to come. And that was a shadow of Christ, the substance of these things. If you 
if you say you're a Sabbath keeper, okay, that comes with some implications. Not only do you have to rest on Saturday, not Sunday, because Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday is the seventh day of the week. So we know that God rested or God worked six days and then on the seventh he rested. So you'd have to rest on Saturday, do no work. Every seventh year, you would have to let your business go fallow, your fields go fallow. That was another part of the Sabbath law. And every 50 years, you'd have to forgive all debts that were owed to you, the year of Jubilee. That was another part of the Sabbath commandment. Okay? So all of these things are part of keeping the Sabbath. So if you want to keep the Sabbath, you better do it right. I don't have to do it. But that's what Paul is saying. This is no longer necessary. It's in Christ that the full substance of the Sabbath is revealed. So the Sabbath was literally a, a foreshadowing of the rest that we would have in Christ. Okay, It's on the seventh day, which is significant because of completion. So in the completion, in the complete work of Christ, we will have rest. And that's what the Sabbath was showing the Israelites. And it was um, instituted for the Israelites, not for us. And we see that clearly in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But in Exodus 31, 17, it says, It is, speaking of the Sabbath, a sign between me, God, and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So it's very obvious in Scripture that the New Testament saints, the believers in Jesus Christ, are not held to the same things that the Old Testament uh, Israelites were. Okay. Plus, the Sabbath is the only commandment out of the ten, that we know as the Ten Commandments, that was abrogated in the New Testament. It was removed um, from the requirements. Okay, so the rest of the ten, yes, obey those commandments. <laughs> but uh, the Sabbath is no longer necessary to get what the Israelites were getting out of it. In Romans, Paul says, one person esteems one day above the another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he who gives thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat. And he goes on and elaborates. Uh, but basically he says, let the Holy Spirit be your guide uh, to these things. One man esteems Sunday as a holy day. Let him do that to the Lord. One day, one person may esteem Saturday a holy day, and go ahead and let him do that. But um, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. Uh, whether you eat or whether you abstain from eating, do it for the Lord. So let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. 
Back up to 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Cheating, that word is speaking of like taking spoils as an army would loot their enemies that they've conquered. Uh, you're taking what has already, what, what's not yours, really. So these people try to come in and spoil you of what you've already gained through Christ. And that is what Paul is warning about. Let no one cheat you or steal from you this reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Now, the worship of angels, like we talked about, the intermediaries between God and creation, that's where this came from. Uh, the worship of angels was gaining traction in Colossae at this time, and that was a stemming off of Gnostic belief uh, because they thought they were intermediaries. So Paul is another clap back here, and he's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Just place Christ as the preeminent one. He's all you need. Uh, the false humility is destructive and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen. So truly, us as humans, we are very, very ignorant of the spirit world. Okay, we're, we're bound in this kind of reality here, in these three spatial dimensions plus time, and we need not get puffed up about trying to figure out all these things about the spirit realm, um, especially teaching them as if they were doctrine, as if we are sure of these things. Because it's hard to be sure apart from what the scripture tells us, um, which there is a lot in scripture. And we know that angels are real, demons are real, Satan is real from scripture. But be careful not to to take too much outside of scripture and think that you're more spiritual because you know that, right? So we just have to be careful with those kind of things, uh, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, which we know is Christ, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And notice that is probably in quotes in your Bible. It is in the New King James. That is a direct teaching from the Gnostics. So they literally taught that some things you should not eat, and sometimes you should not eat at all. Um, they, you should not handle certain things. You should not touch certain things. A direct teaching from these guys who are invading the church. Which all concern things which perish with the using. So they're not going to be around once you get done using them up. It's futile to worry about these things. Which all concern things which perish with the using. According to the commandments and doctrines of men. So if you died with Christ, and the class condition in Greek there, that if can be read as since. Therefore, since you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations according to the commandments and doctrines of men? 
There's no need to, to fill yourself up, fill up your mind with these doctrines of men when you have the substance of what they're trying to get at. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. How much do we love the appearance of wisdom? I mean, I have to be careful myself not to just say things to people that make me sound smart or whatnot. Uh, but the appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, it's useless. It's useless. And Christ is preeminent over wisdom, false humility, and neglect of the body, and that's specifically talking about fasting uh, in the Gnostic context. Okay, Fasting doesn't automatically make you more spiritual than someone else. Um, in, wisdom, in Christ, you have all that you need. And neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The flesh is going to be the flesh, whether you tried to fast, um, whether you tried to do whatever it is, these religious acts uh, in false humility get you nowhere. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all like unclean things, and all our righteousnesses, talking about righteous works, are like filthy rags. Are we going to go to God and say, God, I know, I know that you sent your son to die on the cross, and I know that you paid it all, but here's some of my filthy rags to go with that. That doesn't even make logical sense. Um, and I guarantee you it doesn't to God. He's like, come on, kid. Like, That's already done. Don't even worry about it. Don't concern yourself with it. So what is Paul saying out of all of this? Basically, Christ is enough. Christ is enough for salvation. Christ is enough for righteousness. Christ is enough for the knowledge of the mystery of God which, by the way, was not hidden from us, but is hidden for us in Christ. You don't need to mix anything with Christ, and there's no magic formula for spirituality. All you need is in Christ. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ. We're going to wrap up there for today, and next week we'll be starting chapter 3. So let's go to the preeminent one, to Christ in prayer, and we'll dismiss.